All right, glad to be here today. Hey, let's just thank the Lord already for a great time of worshiping Him. All right, let's do what we do. Let's get our Bible out and let's open it up to Isaiah uh, chapter 6. Isaiah 6 is where we're going to be landing. We're launching a new series called Enter where we're talking about worship. And I can't think of a better topic to begin the year with than to set our attention on the Lord and what it means to worship Him. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to land on this passage here, uh, Isaiah chapter 6. So we're just going to jump into it, a lot for us to learn uh, today. So we're jumping right into it now, Isaiah chapter 6, uh, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and two uh, he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that had taken, he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Let's pray together. Father, we pray in these next few moments that you would open our eyes to see you, that we would be taken back by who you are, and that, Lord, we would understand more what it means to come and worship you, Lord, open our eyes, open our ears, open our heart to receive what you have for us today, Lord. And fill me with your spirit to impart this word in a way that your people would be encouraged and built up and drawn to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's just one word to describe what Isaiah experienced in this passage. And that would be the word awesome. Now listen, we, we like that word, right? We use that word all the time. We use it for everything, right? We, it was an awesome movie. It was awesome food at the restaurant. It, it, it was an awesome bagger that bagged my grocery. Everything is awesome these days. And we kind of lose the weight of the word. Uh, but the word is weighty. It's heavy. It, it means to be filled with awe. And at the core of us, we are wired to seek things that fill our lives with awe. We, we are really awe seekers. Every one of us are awe seekers. Uh, we want things that take our breath away. We, we look for things that we stand in amazement at, at it. Uh, we, we long for things that, uh, that, that, that just uh, uh, 
are extraordinary and spectacular, and we're drawn to those things. We are craving awe in our lives. That's the way God wired us. I think from the very beginning, uh, we're awe seekers. Little kids uh, have this, right? Around Christmas time, there's a sense of awe and wonder and anticipation. Uh, if you've ever taken your kid to Disneyland or Disney World, right? Uh, you see this. I'll never forget taking my two girls there. This was way back now. Uh, but I remember getting them in the gate and they're like, we're here, we're here, we're here. And then we'd turn the corner and we look down that long uh, street there, the main street, and you see the castle of the Magic Kingdom. And it's like their eyes just open and their mouth dropped. And it was like, oh, right? Wonder, amazement, the castle. It was an amazing thing. I spent 45 days in line to see Mickey Mouse, all right? I grew a full beard at that moment, and uh, I'd be quiet because we got to see this awesome mouse thing. You know, we got we to see that. I, I remember uh, during that trip, this one little girl was waiting to see Belle, you know, the Princess Belle. And uh, little Belle comes by, and this girl is just, just standing there, just eyes open, just standing in amazement. And, and uh, Belle said something to this girl, and the girl didn't understand English, so she replied back in French. And in just in a split second, Belle started to bend down and started speaking to the girl in fluent French. And the girl's eyes were just, oh my goodness, what just happened? Awe, wonder, amazement, right? Now listen, we have this as children, but as we grow older, we still are awe seekers. We seek awe in, in life. So we seek awe in sports. Man, did you see that awesome play, man? And, and that was an amazing, we'll never forget that. It'll go, go in time, you know, what an awesome game. Or, or we see it, we seek it in relationships and or we seek it in experiences. That's why people jump out of perfectly good airplanes, all right? Because they want for a moment to feel the thrill of awe and amazement and wonder. We seek it in accomplishment. We seek it in possessions. We seek it all the time. We're looking and we're looking and we're searching for something to fill our hearts with awe and wonder. And the problem is we get it and we get a taste of it and we feel it for a moment, but whatever we have in this world, though we grasp it and for a moment we feel the thrill of it, then it soon fades away. The awe fades. The thrill diminishes. It's like sand through our fingers. We and then we have to go looking for something else, go looking for another, something else to fill this need for awe in our souls. We are at the course, awe seekers. Paul Tripp, a pastor, writer, speaker, he said this, nothing in the entire physical created world can give rest, peace, identity, meaning, purpose, or lasting contentment to your awe-craving heart. There's nothing, you can't, you're, you're asking a created thing to do what it cannot do. You're, at, you're seeking a person to do what he or she cannot possibly do, a thing, a created thing to do what it cannot do. It cannot fill your awe-seeking heart. Only God can do that. Only the one who created the universe. And by the way, any sense of awe that we might experience in this world is just a sliver. It's just a taste of the one who could flood your heart with awe. And so in worship, what we're doing is we're, we're coming to the one that can satisfy our souls and our need to stand awestruck before him. 
That's what worship is. It's giving God our praise, but it's filling our souls with the amazement of him. And that's really what Isaiah is experiencing. When you read this passage, Isaiah is awestruck by the amazing presence of God. So I want to kind of uh, pull this apart a little bit, kind of separate some pieces of it to give us an idea of what awestruck worship looks like. You got a piece of paper, you got an open Bible, hopefully a pen. We take notes around here because we want to remember what God says to us on the weekend and apply it during the week. Amen? Amen? Yeah, so, uh, so we, paper out, pen out, I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts about awestruck worship. And here's the first thing I want you to jot down, is awestruck worship begins with the awesomeness of God. Awestruck worship begins with the awesomeness of God. Isaiah begins to unfold for us God's awesomeness. He starts off with his awesome position. And uh, he says, I saw the Lord, and he was seated. Look at it again. Uh, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he's sitting on a throne. Why, Uzziah must have been off the throne. God was on the throne. By the way, that's good news for us, amen? Uh, Let me just say it, and you say amen. God's on the throne. Okay, let's try it one more time, a little more exuberance. Uh, God is on the throne. That's good news for us. Did you know that almost every time in the Bible when it talks about, you know, somebody have a vision of God or seeing God, that there's a description of God on his throne. Throne is a picture of power. It's a picture of authority. It's a picture of dominion. And uh, he's seated on a throne. And Psalm uh, 11 verse 4, the Lord in his, is in his temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Did you know that there's a throne in heaven? And uh, he's seated on his throne. 2 Chronicles 18, 18 says, I saw the Lord seated on his throne and all the hosts of heaven were standing on his right hand and on his left. Can you imagine that? Not only is there a throne in heaven, but all creation and all the angels are standing around there, standing, waiting to just do whatever he says. Just, just a thought comes and boom, they're gone. They're doing it. They're acting. They're in anticipation and worship of the one who's seated on the throne. That's happening right now in heaven. All right, we're scurrying around here, but right now in heaven, that's what's happening. In fact, John, the close friend of Jesus, inner circle of Jesus, John that wrote the Gospels of John, the Gospel of John and others, he said this in the Revelation 4. He said, I, I saw living creatures giving glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever. God's seated on a throne. That means there's no one like him. There's no one above him. There's no one greater than him. Uh, There's no one uh, equal to him. He is seated on a throne. And that's what's happening now. He's seated on a throne of power and dominion and rule. And not only does it talk about his throne, but it says, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And what does that mean? Well, the train all, uh, refers to his majesty, his royalty. Uh, in fact, in the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, uh, there are pictures of the train of her robe. Here's a picture of it. That's a pretty long train of her robe coming down. I mean, it took six women to carry that thing down the aisle when she was coronated. Uh, some of you ladies had a train on your wedding dress, right? And you're just walk, you were walking. That was your glory, your majesty as you walked down. 
So how long was God's train of his robe? How, how, much, how great is his majesty? Uh, was it about a couple of yards, maybe? Uh, couple, maybe a couple of feet? Maybe, maybe, maybe fill up a whole aisle. Uh, somebody say no. No, it wasn't that. Look at what it says. The train of the robe did what? It, somebody tell me. Yeah, it filled the temple, right? So it's like, it's, like it's, it's down the aisle, then it's around the corner, and then it's piling up over here, and it just keeps piling, keeps folding, keeps building, keeps building. What, what does that imagery say? He is unmatched in his majesty. He, he is, has no equal to his royalty. He, he is king of kings. He's on a throne. He's in charge. He's ruling. His majesty is great. That's the image that Isaiah has here. He's on a throne. This is his high and exalted uh, position. Listen, you've never seen anything like this. Right? You understand that? You've never seen anything like what he's describing. You and I have never seen anything like that. And if we did, it would blow our minds just like it's, it's about to blow Isaiah's mind. His exalted, his awesome position. Then it talks about his nature, his awesome nature. Look at it. It talks about their angels. Look at verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. By the way, seraphim are angels here. Uh, literally the word means burning ones. All right. So this is not the little cute little precious moments thing. You put on your uh, little shelf with the little you know, toy bow and arrow and the chubby face and the belly. All right. Ah, nope, that's not it. These guys are terrifying creatures on fire, blazing, uh, massive. Anytime these guys show up, everybody is scared that they're going to die. All right? That's, that's these people, and they're standing by God's throne. And it's an incredible picture here. They have six wings. I mean, can you imagine this thing? Six wings with two, he flies. With two, he covers his feet. With two, he covers his face. Uh, some seem to indicate that maybe uh, two-thirds uh, of him is in posture of worship with face covered and feet covered. And one-third is, is his ability to work. So we should live two-thirds worship God and one-third working for God. I don't know if that's the application or not, but that is what it says, right? These incredible creatures, they're in God's presence right now. And look at what it says. They're saying something. What are they saying? They're speaking something. It says, uh, verse 3, and one called to the other and said, by the way, this one called the other, there's one, someone on one side and someone on the other side. So this is called antiphonal worship. There it is. One speaking, the other speaking, antiphonal worship. You've done that, right? You've done antiphonal worship. All right, you do it at football games, Right? Right? Uh, so one says boomer, and the other says sooner, or, 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 you know, if you're coming from my particular tribe, it's raider, and then it's power, or, or whatever the thing is, or I've got spirit, yes I do, we got spirit, how about you, and then you do the thing back and forth. All right, that's, yeah, that's antiphonal, all right, back and forth, shouting to one another, well, uh, this is no goofy football game, this is the king of kings. And so they're shouting to one another, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. What are they saying? Holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. They're declaring his nature. He is holy. The word is kadosh here. That's, a, that's the Hebrew word kadosh. It means uh, kadosh. It means uh, separate, different, other, not like us. 
By the way, this is the only place in the Bible where any attribute of God is repeated three times. There are other places, uh, you may say God is love or God is mercy, but never love, 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 never mercy, mercy, only holy, holy, holy. It is the intrinsic characteristic of his nature. He is holy. He is different. He is other. He's not like us. Listen, we may be made in the likeness of God, but he is certainly not made like us. He is not like us. In fact, uh, you say, what do you mean exactly he's not like us? Well, um, just a couple of quick thoughts here. He's, He's not like us in his wisdom. I mean, his wisdom is far beyond. In fact, Isaiah uh, goes on to say in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my higher my ways than your ways and my thoughts your thoughts. All right, so uh, you've seen the Hubble telescope. You've seen these incredible, massive uh, things out there, creation out there, and it's like, thousands and millions of light years away. It's so far away, so big. And, and he's saying, you know, that's kind of like my thoughts and your thoughts. Your thoughts are like this. My thoughts are like this. Your wisdom is about like that. My wisdom is like this. So we, before we get off on telling God how he's wrong and how he didn't do something right or that, uh, you know, if I were God, I would have done it a little differently. Uh, hey, he's different than us. Just Hold that in your mouth because his ways are different. He's not like us. He's not like us in his holiness either, his purity either. There's not, think about it, there's not one speck of sin or imperfection in him. That's hard for us to conceive of a God that has no imperfection. You know, unlike the capricious gods of the Greeks or the Romans that were kind of like superhuman, they were just like us, but maybe they had some cool powers, uh, but, uh, but they were just like us, and they kind of had their own issues, and their own faults, and did their own thing. That is not anything like the God of the Bible. Right? The God of the Bible has no imperfection, no, no sin, no, uh, no iniquity of any kind, absolutely pure, setting the standard of perfection in every way. In fact, Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 1, uh, verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot uh, tolerate a wrongdoing. So when he judges evil, he does it righteously. And when he uh, appraises uh, sinfulness, he appraises it perfectly. And when he deals with sinful people like us, he does it absolutely right every time. We may have courts that screw things up and do things wrong and have all kinds of bias and so on. There's none of that in him. It's absolutely perfect in every way. He's not like us, folks. He's not like us. He is holy, holy, holy in his nature. And then he goes on to say the whole earth is full of his glory. You know, while his nature is holy, his nature is expressed and received in his glory. All right, so an essential element of his nature is holiness, but yet we see that displayed in his glory. And it says the whole earth is full of it. Right now, the whole earth is full of his glory. What are you you talking about? The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, Have you ever seen a great sunset? You ever seen a majestic mountain? range? You ever seen the birth of a child? You ever seen love? You ever seen grace? And goodness, that's God just showing off. You ever go off on, on a night when you're outside of the city and you can see the amazing lights? You ever look through a telescope and you see that the heavens declare the glory of God? 
His glory fills the earth. Every day, day by day, night by night, they are speaking out His glory. And this is what the angel is saying, that God is, God is in a position of awesomeness, but he is by nature awesome and not like us and greater and more terrifying. And then he, then he goes on to talk about his, his power. Check this out, his awesome power. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who was called, and the house was filled with smoke. You ever been in an earthquake? I don't know if you uh, are aware or you've been watching the news, but uh, yesterday a massive earthquake hit Iran, killed lots of people. Uh, some now saying that it's an aftershock, one that happened in past November that killed thousands of people, devastating areas of the country. I tell you what, when the ground starts shaking, that gets your attention. Would you agree with that? How many, how many hands up ever been in an earthquake, all right? Yeah, some of you don't know what I'm talking You know what I'm talking about. Somebody give me an amen. When the ground starts shaking, that's not good. And I mean, I'm, I'm used to dodging tornadoes, but man, when the ground starts shaking, I don't know what to do. And, uh, and it says here that all of a sudden, I mean, just get the imagine. He's standing there. He sees his throne. It's, it's bright. It's brilliant. It's holiness. And, and there's these flaming creatures in there. And they're shouting back and forth. It's so loud. You think your ears are going to burst. Holy, holy, holy. And all of a sudden, their voices are so profound that it's just the ground starts to reverberate. And he's just like, I can't take this anymore. I can't take this. The the awesomeness of God, the power of God. And then all of a sudden, smoke just fills everywhere. So what's the, what's the deal with smoke? It's always the presence of God. It's always been that. Revelation talks about the throne in heaven. In verse, uh, uh, chapter 15, verse 8, it says, The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. From his power. The smoke is a demonstration of his power. This is him walking in. You, you think LeBron's awesome when he smacks his hand and a little powder goes up in the air? Man, this is God just showing off. He's, boom, here I am, the king of kings, the Lord of hosts. In fact, when Solomon was dedicating the temple and they're in there working and all of a sudden God shows up and it says it so filled the temple with smoke that they had to stop their offerings and stop their worship because they could not continue. And it says that everyone fell face down on the ground. My friends, if, if God were to reveal what is happening now in heaven to us, there would not be one person left seated in this room not one person would be standing in this room. We would all be face down on the ground in his presence. It's a terrifying thing. He's holy, holy. I think that sometimes in our desire to enjoy the nearness of God and the love of God and the grace of God that we forget sometimes who we're dealing with. In fact, Hebrews 12 says, let us offer to God acceptable worship. What is that? With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. My friends, don't ever forget that. He's a consuming fire. And Isaiah is awestruck before this reverence of God. And he just, he just can't take it in. He just can't take it in. 
And then he moves from the, the awesomeness of God to the grace of God. Check this out. He's amazed at the grace of God. Look at verse 5. And he says, woe to me, for I am I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king of hosts. The first words uh, that Isaiah says is not, wow, this is awesome. No, no, no. He says, whoa. And by the way, it's not, whoa, cool, dude. All right, it's not that whoa. It's whoa of a prophet. You got to understand what prophets did was they get blessing and curses. And when a prophet starts, comes to your house and starts saying the word whoa, that's not good. That always means God's judgment is coming on you. As a prophet, he's used to going to places, whoa, Babylon, or whoa, Sodom, or whoa to you people. Or, yeah, that means God's going to come down on you for your sin. But here he doesn't say woe to somebody else. He says woe is what? Woe is me. He's pronouncing divine judgment on himself. Man, I, literally he says, I'm lost. Literally the word means I am undone. I am unraveled. I am coming apart at the seams. I have nothing to stand on. I'm, I'm absolutely at the end of myself. That's what he's saying. This is a man who is broken. This is a man who is shattered. This is a man who sees his sin like he has never, ever seen it before. When he comes into the holiness of God, all of a sudden he sees his own sinfulness. Now listen, we live in a culture that says, man, there's no such thing as sin. You just do your thing. You just be your person and you do your thing. And God, understand, you try to be a good person. You try to be nice to people. You try to love people. You try to believe in God. You try to do your best. And that's all going to work out. When you get to God, you can do your best and that's going to be just fine. That's what people are going to tell you. I'm telling you, that's not what this book says. In fact, if anybody was going to be okay because of their goodness, it would have been Isaiah, right? I mean, he was a prophet. God was actually revealing to him things about Jesus that would not come into realization until 700 years later. Last time I checked, none of you have had that, right? And I haven't either. So we're not going to, like, be equal to him in some kind of our own little moral puny scale of goodness. And he's far surpassing that. And yet he says, there is not one thing I can say, one thing I can do. All that I've been standing on, all I've been hoping on is lost. In fact, later on, Isaiah would say these words, and I think he, he's probably reflecting back on this moment. He said, all of us have become like who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. You probably see some dead leaves in your yard. Go out there and look at it today, how the wind just blows it around. He said, that's us. Our souls are shriveled and blown around by our sin. And there's not one good thing I've done that is ever acceptable before God. This is a man who's desperate. And in his desperation, he cries out, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, God. I can't take it, God. I can't stand before you, God. And in that brokenness and desperation, verse 6 comes, then the seraphim flew uh, to me, having in his hand a burning coal that had taken from, from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, uh, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. I want you to underline that in your Bible. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I want you to write Jesus in the margin. 
Here's what I want you to understand. The bad news of the Bible is this, and I want you to hear me. This may be the main point of this talk. Here it is, that every single one of us in this room are going to have an Isaiah moment. Every single one of us is going to stand before God and give an account of our life. Every single one of us. We're going to stand before that throne. We're going to see the throne. We're going to see the angels. We're going to hear the antiphonal worship. We're going to have our sin exposed. And in that moment, what will you do? You're going to say, well, God, I tried. I, I, you know, I believed in God. God, I went to first Colleyville, you know, the first Sunday in, in 2018. God, surely that counts for something. God, I sat through a sermon. No, no, really, what are you going to do? What are you going to stand on? Because nothing Isaiah had to offer could help him. The truth of the matter is that day is coming for you. It's coming for you and for me. And he said, there's only one thing that can be done in that moment. And that is to rely on what Jesus Christ has done. The Bible says we have sinned against God. We've gone our own way. We have lost our way. We are soiled and we're rebellious and we're wicked and we deserve judgment from the core of who we are. And when we were lost and we had nothing to offer God but to receive the judgment that is due us, then all of a sudden God made a way for our sin to be atoned for, our guilt to be washed away. And that was sending Jesus Christ. And when Christ came to this world, he stepped out of heaven onto this earth. He came for one reason, and that was to rescue you and rescue me. And when he went to that cross, he became sin for us. All of our sin was placed on him. All of your rebellion, all your mess-ups, all your sinfulness, all your resistance, resentment, all, all the stuff and the yuck that we hate, that we wouldn't ever want to expose, all that was placed on the back of Jesus, and he died for it. He absorbed the wrath of God for us in our place. And not only did he do that, but he went to the grave, and he rose again on the third day, and now he offers another thing in the place of your sin. He wants to place his righteousness, his imputed righteousness to you for those who believe. Now, if you're saying, well, I'm going to take my own chances. I think I can get by with my own goodness. Well, good luck with that. But I'm telling you, there is no one that's going to stand before him that is not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's not the time to try to figure this thing out. Now is the time to figure it out. And worship is amazed at the at the at the awesomeness of God, but it also drives us to the grace of God. And then ultimately, ultimately we get to answering the call of God. If you look at this last verse here quickly, I'm wrapping this thing up. Verse eight says, and I heard a voice of the Lord saying, by the way, this is the only time where God speaks in this passage. Uh, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he said, here I am, send me. Only once you've been in the presence of God, are you then ready to go into the world? See, see, he changed. Isaiah was changed at this moment. I mean, he was fundamentally, at his core, changed. All of a sudden, he had you know, realized his sinfulness, and all of a sudden, he, he realized his need. And all of a sudden, he was, he, he was changed uh, as, as a man that had confessed his sin and received forgiveness, and now he was ready to be thrust out in the world as an as ambassador for God. 
And listen, that's God's plan for you. God's plan for you is not to come to worship and check the box and go, okay, you know, worship was kind of good. I kind of took it in. I'm going to go do my thing this week. No, 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 you missed the point. The point is that we come in his presence and then we're, we're reminded of his grace and then we leave filled with his spirit to do what he wants. As changed men, as changed women who are different than the people that do not know him. That's what God wants. Worship changes everything. Being in God's presence changes everything. It changes our, our desires now. We're not for ourselves, but for him. Our, our boldness is not for what we want, but to get the gospel out. Our, our, our hunger is to see Christ exalted. All these things happen when we get on board with God changing us. And when we experience his presence in worship, everything changes. Have you been changed like that? John Piper says that uh, worship is the fuel of our mission. I love that. It's like gas in the tank. It just propels us. In fact, you can't not uh, share the gospel, can't not invest your life, cannot serve God. And so if I see a believer and they're kind of sitting on the sidelines, hadn't shared the gospel, hadn't shared with their lost friend in years, uh, isn't serving anywhere, has no desire for God's word, then I'm going like, dude, are, do you, have you... Have you even like been in God's presence? Have you come to this breaking point? Are you really saved? You may think that's judgmental. I just think that's biblical. It's a good question to ask because something is fundamentally wrong if, if there's no hunger for the mission of God in you. Because when that happens, you're different. So has that happened? I'm going to wrap this up now. Worship. Awestruck worship begins with the awesomeness of God. It moves to the grace of God and results in the, the, the call of God on your life to serve him. And that's what God wants for you. But you have to know him.